Hey, uh, beautiful decorations. Uh, first Sunday in December. Yeah, I love these trees. Especially love the tree out in the hallway. Did you all see that? The first one? Yeah, that's neat. Uh, and uh, even the teacher's got a red sweater on. So it must be a nice, cheery Christmas message. Well, not so much. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, as you know, we're plowing through, trying to finish up the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to continue in that course. Mike's doing a great series on awaiting the King, uh, but when I looked at, this, at the scriptures uh, related to our message today, it occurred to me that this is one of, if not the most serious message I've ever given. And you'll see about that later. Uh, I hope you'll listen. Uh, We're kind of in a mini-series in which Jesus says that we must choose. We must decide between certain things. We started with the two gates. The straight or difficult one as opposed to the wide one. And then the next time we went on to the two roads that lead from those two gates... The narrow one from the straight, and the other one that we call Broadway that leads from the wide gate. And then last month, we dealt with the passage about false prophets. And today, we're going to continue on with that same passage, uh, Matthew 7, 15 through 20. It's on your study sheet. I'm not going to read it just because of the time constraints here. I'm probably going to go a little long. Uh, and, but we're going to focus on how to discern false prophets and people who follow them from the fruit that derives from their nature, or as the metaphor goes, their trees. Okay? Like last time, uh, we're not just going to talk about false prophets. There are extensions of the teachings that apply to all of us uh, and... So please pay attention. Now, there's a bit of dissonance between some as to the command to judge not as opposed to beware of false prophets. Okay? And of course, the false prophet will teach that you don't want to say anything that might be critical or question the actions or words of others. However, These words are the words of Jesus. And if you're going to beware, you are going to judge. And of course, it's impossible not to. Uh, Of course, we all believe here that we must be gracious, we must never be of a judgmental spirit, but we still make judgments regularly. In fact, Can't avoid it. If you're paying attention today, you are likely judging me and my words this very moment. At least I hope you are. Our judgment, however, is always tempered, you remember, with the reminder that with the judgment we judge, we shall be judged. We're setting up a standard for being judged ourselves. The false prophet, however, always avoids certain topics, as if the Bible doesn't apply. That way, he's immune from criticism, 
because he doesn't criticize. He just uses his personality. He's non-confrontive. He's non-offensive. He's non-confrontational, at least to the non-discerning pew-sitter. Now, let's go on. Kind of a creepy picture. But uh, the, the corrupt tree, we need to remember, is not a tree that's outwardly rotten and obviously dead. Because those trees do not bear any fruit. Real fruit trees could look perfectly normal. However, the fruit of a particular tree may be bad because of pests or nutrient deficiencies or over or under watering. And that's the subtlety here. The point is that trees which look the same can, be, can bear very different, good, bad, or maybe even no fruit at all. The disease or the problem is on the inside, so you cannot see it. And last time in discussing the false prophets, we dealt with the doctrine side of their fruit. And today we're going to deal with the manner or behavior of the false prophets and others who follow them. Now, this metaphor about trees is, illustrates a great principle. It's not the appearance on the surface that determines the fruit. Likewise, it's not primarily our outward appearance that is important in our walk with God. Rather, it's our foundational character, our essence, our character, whether we truly have become new creations. And so, to be a Christian is something central to our personality, fundamental to our being. And by using character, nature, or real essence of the trees and the fruit that they produce, respectively, Jesus is saying something about people. Now, this is the essence we should look for in ourselves and others. So we've got to decide between two trees. And when we say that, what we really mean is we're deciding between two natures. The danger here is to rely upon outward appearance uh, of those who appear to be Christians. When we studied the false prophet, we saw that they usually have a nice appearance, a very congenial uh, personality. Uh, But that doesn't make a true teacher or a true gospel presentation as compared to, to one who teaches and preaches the whole gospel. The danger of all this is that we can add certain things to life, like our Christian lingo, a good smile, maybe a cross necklace, or just going to church, and yet not be new creation. A man or woman may look and act like a Christian, a really nice one, yet not really be one. The emphasis that Jesus placed here is on the inside, the nature or the heart of a person, just like the inside of a tree determines the quality of its fruit. So uh, the second key key principle here is to, to become a Christian means a real change in life and in nature. This is what we call being born again. Now, in a few weeks, Lord willing, we're going to be addressing the rather shocking passage in which some say to Jesus, have we not prophesied, have we not cast out demons, and we have done many wonderful works 
in your name. And his response is, depart from me, I never knew you, you that work iniquity. You see, these are the people doing and saying all the right things. But their nature was not changed. And what they did in the name of Christ had no eternal value. So, being a Christ follower is mostly about the state of the heart. The heart is the center of personality, nature, or character. A little bunny trail here. The Greek for heart is cardia. So we get cardiac arrest, right? The Latin is close. It's cordia. If you've heard of the town named Concordia, that is a great name. Con with heart. Okay? But the, Bible, the biblical heart is the core of a person. So understand that. The third principle that we want to get down here is whatever the heart of a man is, is certain to come out. If it's occupied by hatred, it will eventually manifest itself in anger, bitterness, and a judgmental spirit. If it's filled with love and joy, you'll see it in the countenance, in the attitude, uh, and, and in the character of that person. It will reveal itself eventually. If you think about the doctrine of a, of a teacher, if you only listen for what is outrageously wrong, you will never discover the false prophet. Rather, you must understand that there are certain things or doctrines a Christian will not omit. And at Lion Lamb, we hold that the Bible speaks directly or indirectly to all situations, and none should be shielded from the light of truth. The nature of a false prophet, however, prevents him from addressing certain subjects or doctrines. False prophets will look and sound like a Christian from the pulpit, but what he does not reveal, what he does not say, tells you that he is not. Instead, he's just a wolf in sheep's clothing. And the same is true about his life. Okay? But nature always expresses itself. Jesus asks a question. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? That's what we call a rhetorical question. You know the answer. In other words, a per, as a person thinks, so he is and so he does. The nature or heart of a person determines how his life is lived. We're not talking about appearances here, which we know can be deceptive, rather about a life lived over time. And this is where we get to one of the most important questions. I ask you to please pay attention to God's Word here. If you think about it, most Christians have known people who have said a prayer or gone forward in a large evangelistic meeting and made some sort of statement or profession which appears to be a, a, a conversion. Then, sometimes later, you see that person and they're back to life as before with no apparent change. And if we had believed at the time that they were saved before, Christians like you and me are hesitant to say that they're not now. We sometimes call them backslidden. But I, I'm telling you today, that is a misnomer. Last time, we touched upon the issue of the, of the eternal security that we hold at Lion and Lamb. 
And once a person truly gives their heart to Jesus, they become a member of his flock. As Jesus puts it in John 10, true sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch, snatch them out of my hand. So the believer is secure. That's true. But it's only the true believer that is secure. Now, if you would, turn with me to 2 Peter 2 uh, in your Bibles, because this is really, really important. And chapter 2 here addresses false prophets and then proceeds in detail about people who listen to and follow the false prophets. And there he says, uh, and I'm going to interlineate a little bit here, uh, that in verse 2, many will follow the false prophet's sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. It's working. And their destruction is not asleep. It's awaiting them. Peter then goes on to explain how God doesn't mind judging people, even angels. And then he makes this interesting statement, starting in verse 20. Which you see part of it there on the, on the screen. For if they have escaped the defilements, another word is pollution, of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them these defilements, and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true prof proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Now, if you're not discerning, that may sound a bit like a person has been saved and then lost their salvation. So how do we, who believe in eternal security, answer our brothers and sisters who believe that you can lose your, your salvation? And they point to Peter as authority for that proposition. Well, turn left a page or two, and go to 2 Peter 1. And here, Peter is talking about true believers. And he says, starting in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption, another word there for that is ruin, that is in the world because of sinful desire. Okay, let's notice a distinction here. The difference between, there's, there's two escapes here. Escape from corruption and ruin in chapter 1, and escape from Defilement or pollution in chapter 2 may seem like a slight one, but it's really, really significant. The difference between pollution and ruin is that the former pollution can be cleaned up, but then repolluted, redefiled. Ruin is a synonym for destruction. It is permanent. 
So the essence of the difference here is that the true believer in chapter 1 has become a partaker of the divine nature and therefore is saved and escapes the ruin of eternal damnation. But the person listening to the false prophet in chapter 2 acquires a knowledge of God. He may come to his senses about some particular sin in his life, maybe even a conviction, which results in a temporary change in his behavior. He is, in effect, washed clean of that defilement or pollution like a sow for a while. He cleans up his act. However, he has not acquired the divine nature as his own. It's like a surface cleaning. It doesn't change the inner nature. Rather, it only gives the appearance of being a Christian. Therefore, eventually, he returns to the muck like a sow or his own vomit like a dog. Not a pretty picture at all. Look how Peter describes the interaction between the false prophet and a person who only cleans up the outside. We're going to call the false convert. Starting in 2 Peter 2, go back there, verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly, these false prophets enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, including emotions, those who are barely escaping. In other words, they put their hand to the plow, but they look back. From those who live in error, the world. These false prophets promise the false convert freedom, but the false prophets themselves are slaves of corruption or ruin. And whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Do you see how subtle this is? The teacher with the pleasant voice, the gentle demeanor, who never offends, leads the unsuspecting listener to a knowledge of the pleasant, gentle Jesus. And it may result in the avoidance of some sin and washing away of some filthiness of the world. And the false convert is told and believes that he is saved. And to those in the, in the audience or listening to the false prophet, the false convert is maybe even he's talking about Jesus now. And he may be a changed, cleaner person. So everybody rejoices in the salvation of the lost. Everyone's caught up in the feeling and the emotion of it all. But after a while, he goes back to his old ways. Because he sees that Broadway was more fun. And they all wonder, what happened? Think of the consequences. Think of the seriousness of what the false prophet has done here. If, this was, if he was just a used car salesman, worst case is you spent a few thousand dollars on a lemon. Think about this. This is eternity. It's a big deal. This person is deceived into thinking he's saved when in fact he's returning to his own vomit. Nothing has changed because the inner nature was never changed. He never partook of the divine nature. We can see this, how serious this is, from the consequences of the false prophet who brings about this havoc. In 2 Peter 2, verse 17, listen to this. These false prophets are waterless springs. 
happens. Now think about that. The lost are in the desert and they're looking. They're thirsty. And they find the oasis and a spring, but it's dry. They're misdriven by the storm. They're adrift at sea and they need an anchor. They're tossed to and fro. But all they get is a mist. Listen to this. For them, the false prophet, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. In other words, there's a special place in hell for them. And if you're not a false prophet, you don't want to be his neighbor. You don't want to be in his community, his state, or even in his world at that time. But if you go back and you read John 10, you see a beautiful passage about how God, through Jesus, loves his sheep, and they love him, and they follow him. The false prophet makes his listeners vulnerable to the wolves, but Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. So Jesus is saying here that the factor that determines whether one is a Christ follower is the nature within, not the outside, which anyone can clean up or fake temporarily. That inward nature, like all else in nature, will eventually express itself in its fruit. You remember the uh, sometimes controversial uh, passage by James uh, where he says that faith without works is a phony faith. A show or declaration without real inward change. Therefore, James is a friend. He gives us the hard truth that the false prophets will not teach. It may sound like faith, but it does not result in consistent outworking of good fruit. That faith is dead, and it cannot save anyone. Now, if you're more evangelistic, this may be troublesome for you. If you have had the thrill of leading somebody in a sinner's prayer... And thinking, maybe God used me to bring a soul to salvation. Just think about this. Knowing what you know about human nature, is it possible that people can say things they do not mean? Is it possible to change your behavior for the better temporarily? Think children. Well, for that matter, think adults. Is it possible that one can be carried along by emotion so much that he might say anything with that emotion and act differently only to reconsider and go back to his old ways later? Is it possible to pray and act disingenuously? And this points out why discipleship is so important. Yeah, some may sow seeds, some may water, others may reap. But if you have the privilege of leading somebody to Christ, it is vital that you get that person into a discipleship relationship, not just a pew in a church. Evangelism is the beginning of discipleship. And if you are a new, a baby Christian, you must get into a relationship of discipleship where somebody can help you along the way to see the truth as opposed to the lies. So, 
We've seen the problem of the false prophet leading to the false convert. Uh, Just understand that the false prophets are standing just outside the narrow gate, diverting attention, hoping that you will take Broadway because that's where all your, your buds are. Everybody's there. Jesus says you will know them. You will be able to discriminate or discern between the true and the false by their fruit. So, for what do we look? What does good fruit look like? What's the character of it? We've got to recognize that there are certain people who just try to look like Christians, who express a faith, a false faith, not genuine, and perhaps they don't even know it. Let me ask you a question. Who's more dangerous to the church than the humanists, the atheists, the new spiritualists, the cultists, the occultist, I would submit to you, it's these false prophets and sometimes these false converts. Why? Because they look so much like Christians. They're so nice and pleasing and maybe even moral. Yet they preach and practice a false and counterfeit Christianity. And when you add to that what we know about the state of the church at large today, it's pretty worldly, it makes you wonder if there's a, con- a connection. The explanation for the present condition of the body of Christ on earth today is not so much about forces from outside, like secular humanism and atheism and all the other isms that should be isms. Rather, it's more about what is on the inside of the church. Let's get back to the individual who professes to be a Christian, living a, what we would all think to be a good Christian life. He can appear to be good, clean, moral, and of high standard of conduct, yet not be a Christ follower. Uh, years ago, uh, I went to a volleyball tournament, uh, which included private schools, including some Christian schools. And during the warm-ups, I noticed one team that was especially enthusiastic, especially encouraging among themselves, and they appeared to be the most Christ-like. And I wondered, who is that? What team is that? And I found out it was the Mormon team. You know, and if you've ever had the, 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 the well-groomed young men come to the door with the black ties and see how mannerly and courteous they are, you might be tempted to call your daughter down to meet them. But if you listen long enough, you'll find out that they believe some of the craziest things you've ever heard. Okay? But what we're talking about here is a bit more subtle. Jesus makes clear that it is not the appearances we can count on, rather it is you will know them by their fruits. And this is where we can sometimes get confused because we can think that certain things are fruits like appearance and manners and all that sort of thing. Uh, just being nice. But that's not a true indicator of where a person is spiritually. How can you discriminate or discern whether that person is or is not a believer? So we're going to talk about some tests now for some general ones and then some specifics. You know, it might be that a person who attends church meetings and are very friendly, but, they, but you don't really know that person. You don't really, really know where they stand with respect to Christ. And so you might ask, what is that person living that sort of life for? Why? 
Is it because of a temperament or personality? You know, they may simply be because they're nice people. They're pleasant. They never say anything offensive or obviously an unchristian. And maybe they think that going to church is the nice thing to do. Maybe they like the music or the other nice people. You know, you've all met people like this. They're just, it seems like some people are just born that way. Now, I am not saying that these people should be disclosed, uncovered, and thrown out of the church. Rather, it really, really helps to know somebody and where they're at. At Lion and Lamb, we've had some of the nicest people in the world come here. You know, and talk to people. And then you find out that they have no concept of what the gospel is. Some will accept Christ. Some will say, you know, that's too narrow for me. And they'll walk away. And that's exactly the point. Frankly, this is one of the tremendous benefits of the personal interviews that we do for becoming a covenant member at Lion and Lamb. For some, this is some of the, one of the first times that we've heard the testimony from some of you people who have been here for years. But whether or not you plant your flag and commit to Lion and Lamb as a covenant member, we encourage you, join up in a small group so you can have these conversations. Another question that you can ask is, does this person simply comport with some moral code or standard? You know, there are people outside the church who live as if they're Christians, very moral lives. And maybe they're influenced by the, whatever general Christian culture there is out there, uh, or perhaps through a godly parent or grandparent. But the spirit of that teaching never really caught hold. And they live so well that some scoffers have said there are more Christians outside the church than inside. Some people also say that you can't legislate morality. And that is true in the sense that law never forces somebody to be good or moral in their hearts. However, it is absolutely untrue in that law is always somebody's idea of what ought to be the standard. And it sets a legal standard for all and sets a general moral tone. In the latter sense, you cannot not legislate morality. Or whatever you legislate, you are legislating anybody or somebody's morality. Now, our point here is that whatever the effect of law or grandma on a person morally, it does not necessarily lead to salvation of that person, even when that influence has been effective. Some call these outstanding citizens good pagans. Remember, the Greek pagan philosophers almost always taught about morality uh, before Christ's ministry. And some of it was consistent with God's word. Yet, when Christ came, these same philosophers were some of his biggest critics, believing that his teachings were foolish. Now, let's be clear here about something. Just a a few weeks ago, Mike taught about how Christians will sometimes find themselves aligned with others in advocating certain positions on moral issues, perhaps even Muslims or Mormons or others. This can be a little tricky because you cannot compromise the essentials of the Christian faith in the process. However, if others believe the same as Christians on an issue, like abortion or marriage or whatever, we really don't have the right to tell them they can't agree with us. 
But on the spiritual position of a person, we need to ask, is that moral belief due to a desire to follow Jesus, or is it a position from some other source? And Christians who speak out on moral issues may welcome support from others for the benefit of our temporal world and culture. However, from the aspect of eternity, that which counts the most, that which makes this life appear like a blip on the screen, the prophet Isaiah said it unambiguously, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It is only that which springs from the new nature of the Christ follower that is of any eternal value in the sight of our righteous God. Let's go on to some more specific tests. First, there's the negative test. Negative in the sense that a man is not a true believer in Christ uh, who will not believe certain essential doctrines, and it will eventually come out. There will be a certain failure to exhibit the character of Christ. And it won't be because he's committing something obvious, like adultery or murder or getting drunk or high. Rather, that person is not convinced of the absolute holiness of God compared to his filthiness of his sin. Now, he'll not, that person will not see the message of the cross uh, was that for all personal righteousness is filthy, and he himself is a helpless, foul sinner. And that will eventually show in his life. So the rejection of that high view of salvation will cause that person at some point to fail to walk the narrow path, and he will conform to the world. You won't see anything specifically wrong, but the outlook and attitude of that person will be worldly, not spiritual. Positive test is that we look for the character of Christ. We sometimes call this the fruit test. And it's always positive. The fruit may look good, Take a bite, it might be sweet, but it might be sour. And if it is sour, you know the tree is bad. You don't get bad fruit from a good tree. A genuine follower of Christ will exemplify first the Beatitudes that we've studied before. Recognize their spiritual poverty and will mourn over their sin. They'll be meek. They'll hunger and thirst after righteousness. They'll be a peacemaker and pure in heart. Why? Because the very nature of that person, the core of that tree, is good. It is, in reality, Christ. Likewise, as a Christ follower, you'll bear, he will bear the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5. And you see him on the, on the screen there. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such, there is no law. Now, You will not see this fruit consistently in a good pagan, a person who has a great personality, nor a false convert, and certainly not a false prophet. It is the fruit of a good tree that is good. Now, if you can remember last month in our discussion about false prophets, we, we talked about how nice, how what an easy gospel, focused pretty much on the love of God. And we call that a half gospel or a false gospel, because it is a gospel that leads to Broadway, a street that's easy to navigate because it's so wide, and it is so popular. Many there be that find it. If you weren't here, you can't remember, let me reassure you. Here at Lion Land, we do believe in God's love. 
And it, it was that love that was the reason that Christ died on the cross for us. But we also believe that there's a reason that Jesus had to die on the cross, and that is the justice of God. A justice that requires a payment for sin. Your sin, my sin. But it's that part about God's justice and our desperate needs for Christ that the false prophet will never talk about. And that false gospel is so much more appealing than the straight gate and the narrow road. The problem is, Broadway leads to destruction. That's why it's so important that we get it right. That we study, we understand, we live and we teach the whole gospel of love. Yes, absolutely. But why we as sinners need that love. And so it is with the fruit test. You will know whether a person passes the test by the way that he or she lives and speaks consistently over time. The last test I want to mention today is humility. It is the ultimate test. We've spoken about pride before and how contrary it is to the character of Christ. If a teacher or another who claims to be a Christian is characterized by the pride of life, That person cannot be of Christ. It may not be readily apparent, but eventually it will come out. And it will usually come out through that person's idle words. In Matthew 12, we find the account of Jesus casting demons out from a possessed man. And then the pride-filled Pharisees come up and accuse him of doing so under the power of Satan. And his response, starting in verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless, idle word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You know, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, pride is something that I struggle with. So, I ask you, as Brian was trying to teach in Sunday school this morning, be my friend and tell me if you ever see any hint of that. Please. Please. The, uh, the humility test is passed by the person who genuinely believes in the holiness and purity of God, yet sees him the blackness of his own sin in his heart, and he believes in God's judgment and the reality of hell, but who understands and genuinely accepts that the only way to be washed clean of that stain of sin permanently is by God coming humbly to earth as flesh, passing through a virgin, living a life subject to temptation yet without sin, then going to the cross to die a cruel, agonizing, and shameful death in order to satisfy, to pay for, 
to balance that heavy weight of sin because of the justice of God with the love of Christ. And then is born again and takes on the nature of Christ. In a few minutes, the believers here are going to be invited to take part in the Lord's table. Part of that time is for self-examination. For you to conclude whether there's anything in your heart between you and God or you and anybody else that would separate you from him before you take of the elements. That would be a good time to remember not only that he sacrificed for us, but why he had to sacrifice for us, our desperate need for Christ because of our pride, our offenses, our sin. Now, if you're not sure that you had that divine nature in your heart, please don't take part in the Lord's table. Instead, that would be a good time for you to talk to God about that. And then, if you would honor us, please talk to one of the leaders here about that after the service. Finally, you should remember, no matter how wrongly you judge or are deceived by a false prophet, God is the final judge, and he will not be deceived. Our passage here includes this sobering reminder, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And we should all pray for God's mercy that we would first concentrate on being certain that we have that nature, the character of Christ, also that we would have discernment to understand what Jesus is telling us here with regards to others who pose a danger to the body of Christ through false teaching and misrepresentation of Christ. Therefore, you will know them by their fruits. So, whether you're a true believer or you're unsure or you know that you're not, I want to leave you with this last image. You see the guy with the hammer and the nails? That's you. Every single one of you. That's me. Praise God. Father, we do give all praise and glory to you. That you were willing to pay the price to satisfy the justice of God with your perfect love. That you sent your only Son to the cross to suffer and die so that we might spend eternity with you. Lord, if there's anybody here who has not understood that, who has not accepted that, Lord, would you work in their heart today to do just that? Lord, help us to be weary, to be aware of false prophets. Help us to correct those who have been deceived so that they might understand the whole good news that you bring. That not only do you love us, but you have a price to pay. And thankfully, you paid that through your son. If we will only recognize that, that we need that, that sacrifice for us.
We give praise and honor to you, Lord. Help us to understand these things and apply these things in our lives. And for that, we give you and only you the glory. In the name of your Son and our Savior, amen.